Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. Of course, the millions of dollars the Atlantic Council got from American weapons manufacturers, stock prices dependent on public fear. Information Terrorism Watch. In the One Side to Every Story corporate media episode this week, Arts Express continues spotlighting their fear tactics terrorizing audiences with endless Russian attack schemes on repeat. Channeling the Atlantic Council NATO think tank funded by the U.S. military, Lockheed Martin, Goldman Sachs, Chevron, British Petroleum, Saab Technology, and General Atomics, U.S. weapons manufacturers dependent on fear-mongering. RT's Morad Gastiev and Chris Hedges weigh in. If you haven't heard about the Atlantic Council, it is arguably one of the most aggressive pro-violence think tanks in the world. That is the de facto think tank of NATO. So no surprise they've been at the forefront of this hysteria that we're all sick of. Just listen to their deputy director. Putin has big weekend plans in Ukraine. He's going to cut power and heat, knock out Ukrainian Navy and Air Force, kill general staff and hit them with cyber attack. Then install pro-Russian president and resort to full-scale military invasion if Ukraine doesn't give in. This was last week. And just like her previous predictions, no one invaded anyone. But she did her job. She helped mislead countless people and spread immeasurable fear and panic and, and even terror. And she, she has now been hired by the U.S. government to lecture on Russian disinformation. But what other things can you, the U.S. government, European governments, and the Ukrainians do uh, to combat state-sponsored disinformation efforts coming from Moscow? We live in an upside-down world. The Atlantic Council, which is co-funded by such organizations as the U.S. military, all manner of Western weapons manufacturers, as well as oil giants and a slew of banks, you would think that with all that money, the Atlantic Council would be a a serious organization. Analysts and intelligence and tactical teams and strategic teams. No, their predictions are based on feelings and emotions we have learned. Emotions running high, and I let them get the better of me. I still expect action this week, but Putin may drag this out. We still don't know. Bottom line is that I recognize that I need to be more judicious. Her feelings, her heart, told her that, that Putin was about to cut power to Ukraine and, and kill their senior officers and take out the Navy. Of course, the millions of dollars her organization gets from American weapons manufacturers, whose stock prices are directly dependent on public fear, had nothing to do with that. Similarly, I think she would be against having to disclose that the Atlantic Council is funded by arms manufacturers in every one of her tweets. She's also against U.S. state-funded media having to disclose such information, like Voice of America. Uh, Voice of America had a great reputation, trusted uh, media outlet. Uh, what's the status? Does it still have a good reputation, and is it blocked in Russia? I would be surprised if it wasn't blocked. And there we go. A discussion on Russian disinformation turns into disinformation about Russia. It's a ridiculous situation, comical even until you realize that these people are advising the U.S. government, European states, media outlets. And you can only wonder how much more damage have their emotions done that we don't know about. They produce a lot of effect on policymaking because they determine the debate. So uh, they uh, work to shut out people with alternative viewpoints uh, to promote uh, the dominant narrative, well, it poses a lot of risks, but I think uh, from their point, it's a win-win. So uh, if there is an invasion, then they look kind of prescient, and if there isn't, they'll all run around thumping their chest saying how strong they are and how uh, Moscow backed down because Joe Biden's such a tough leader. In fact, uh, Thomas Friedman just wrote a column basically saying that the other day. So they are one of the uh, I would say, major propaganda tools that are used by the, the, uh, the security state. And coming up next, 
Arts Express has recently acquired from a deep source a document which purports to be from an upcoming New York Crime Sunday magazine issue, wherein the award-winning crime ethics columnist answers his readers' naughty moral dilemmas. In the Arts Express Playhouse, the ethicist replies, concerning landlords, company fraud, Maya Angelou, overpriced drugs, lack of Medicare and losing front teeth to apple crumb pie, and supervising from a home computer the remote drone bombing of a Syrian village. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. Arts Express has recently acquired from a deep source a document which purports to be from an upcoming New York Crime Sunday magazine issue. The manuscript pages seem to be an impending advanced edition of the magazine's popular Dear Ethicist column, wherein the award-winning New York Crime's ethics columnist answers his readers' naughty moral dilemmas. Dear Ethicist, I recently evicted a score of tenants from a building I own. Do you think that as a homeowner, I am ethically obligated to file a change of address form with the Postal Service for each former tenant? The Ethicist replies, You're under no obligation to fill out the postal forms yourself. However, if some of the tenants were disabled or become disabled as a result of the eviction proceedings, then it would be a gracious gesture, though not a legal one, to perhaps provide the forms and pens to those still camped out on your doorsteps. Dear Ethicist, a colleague recently uncovered massive fraud and deception at work while updating the department's computer operating system. Should I report my colleague directly to my boss, or would it be better simply to send an anonymous letter so that no one's feelings are hurt? The ethicist replies, It's certainly thoughtful of you not to want to hurt anyone's feelings, but it may be the situation calls for honesty among friends. Your co-worker deserves to know of your loyalty to your company so that after his release from prison, he might model himself on someone who clearly gives 100% to the job. As they say, a good example is the best teacher. Dear Ethicist, Last week, while at my home computer supervising the remote drone bombing of the Syrian village, a friendly colleague who I hadn't seen in a number of months came by to help me out. My wife says that after such a long absence, the colleague should have brought over a little gift of some kind to acknowledge the long absence. I feel, if we're friends, then we shouldn't have to rest on formality. Who is right? The ethicist replies. Unannounced visits can be startling to one's partner, even if you yourself welcome the visit. Perhaps your wife felt that she should be compensated in some way for the inconvenience a sudden drop-in might cause. Or, and this is something you might take up with your spouse privately at a quiet time, perhaps your loved one feels shut out when you and your colleagues conduct bombing raids and leave her out. Nobody likes feeling left out, and in the future you might invite her to try her hands at the controls, even if it's just a small hut or two and not a major population center. Dear Ethicist, My grandmother, whose Medicare does not pay for dental care, has taken to losing teeth whenever she eats her favorite apple crumb pie. We hate to ban the pie from her diet, but we never know whether a tooth should go into the compost heap, the plastics and metals, or just the regular trash. So now they're just piling up. Which would be the more environmentally correct way to dispose of them? The ethicist replies, 
It's one of the truisms of modern life that as we try to treat the planet better, things can get more confusing. It depends whether Granny's teeth are her own or some kind of replacement. If they were her own, they are organic and should go in the compost heap. If they're replacements, then they're probably an amalgam of plastic and metal and should go in the recycling bin, assuming your town or city has separate streams for such. The good news is that even under the worst possible scenario, you'll only have to make the decision 32 times, since Grandma has no insurance at this point to further replace the teeth. Dear ethicist, as head of a medical supply company, I acquired in a recent merger the patent of a new life-saving drug. Based on supply and demand and what the market will bear, I tripled the consumer price. My investors have congratulated me over how the company's stock prices soared. However, some patients can no longer afford the medication. Would it be all right to organize a picnic for those poorer patients in order to make their final days more pleasant? And do you think it should be on a weekday or on a weekend? And would it be okay to institute a no-pets policy for those who may be allergic? The ethicist replies, When I taught my Ethics 101 class at Harvard University, we had a similar situation come up in the very classroom itself. There was one student who could no longer pay tuition after the most recent tuition hike, and though we didn't arrange a picnic as you are considering, we did take a collection to present the student with a 10% off coupon for the Red Lobster restaurant of his choice. Turned out the boy was an observant Jew and so couldn't use the coupons, but it's always important to remember that it is the gesture that is remembered. As Maya Angelou said, I've learned that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. Dear ethicist, I am in a rather powerful political position. It is not easy, especially as a woman, to handle the volume of complaints I must deal with. The number of emails from constituents who carp about not having enough bread to eat has gotten to the point where I spend more time answering their emails than all my other work combined. Should I just direct their complaints to the spam folder? Or would it be more efficient to remind them through auto-reply that in a pinch they could just eat cake? I don't want to impugn the intelligence of my unimaginative constituents, but it's not rocket science. The ethicist replies, The stresses of a responsible job can make us all a little bit cranky at times. It comes with the territory. While it was considerate of you to offer an alternative to bread, it may be wise to remember that not everybody can digest gluten-based products. There are some cake mixes on the market today that offer a healthier choice. Perhaps replying with an appetizing photo or two of some oat-based or quinoa-based bakery goods might stimulate the imaginations and palates of your more idea-challenged constituents. Dear Ethicist, Is it ethical to write a column that focuses on everyday trivial matters of etiquette and ethics while ignoring and thus implicitly excusing the larger breaches of ethics and morality that your newspaper supports every single day? Unfortunately, the document ends here you'll have to provide your own answers. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And next on the show...
And those were, of course, sounds from the classic soul quintet, The Spinners. And our guest on Arts Express is the last surviving member of the group who keeps their music and their sound alive today, Henry Fambro. Quote, I love to get back out there, see the joy of the people's faces performing for them, and doing everything all over again. And Fambro has also been participating musically in movies like Spike Lee's To Five Bloods. Black G.I., is it fair to serve more than the white Americans that sent you here? Nothing is more confused than to be ordered into a war to die without the faintest idea of what's going on. I dedicate this next record to the Soul Brothers of the 1st Infantry Divisions. Be safe. Welcome back to Vietnam. Look what I found. You're the man in all his glory. Who was that guy? That brother was the best damn soldier that ever lived. We bury it. Later on, we come back and collect. I shall resign the presidency. Being back here, it is not easy. Broken man. So what, you blaming yourself? You don't even know. No! for this country from the very get. Now the time is There are things to really We give this call to our people. Hold on! In my line of work, I have to be very careful. And that means knowing exactly who I am in business with. And Henry Fambro will be sharing memories of the Spinner's creative musical journey from Detroit's Motown to Philadelphia's Soul, collaborating with Stevie Wonder and Ian Warwick. And he'll talk about his new album, Round the Block and Back Again, and how the Spinner's still continue with new musicians. And their stirring sound, celebrating the optimism of the African-American Great Migration North, escaping Jim Crow Southern Terror, only to face new disappointments and horrors up north. First, a little memory lane spinner's music, then Henry Fambrow.
Hello, and welcome to our show. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. What can you say about your new Spinner's album after nearly four decades, and why a new album at this moment in time? Well, it, 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 we, we are always uh, going to record, you know. But sometimes, you, you, in between, you have a little time, and, and you, in, in between producers, you know, we we don't we don't let everybody produce on us, you know, because everybody don't know don't know our sound and can't write for us, and 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 you got to have the right producer to compile the material for you to record, and and, and your audience is very 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 selective on your material, because if you don't have the right material at that. It's really going to affect you as a, as an artist, you know. Mm. So we have to make sure that the material that is selected by the producer is the right material for our sound. And what's up with your tour? Oh yeah, well we 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 we've been steady touring for years and years, and we will keep on doing that. And right now, uh, we we'll we'll but couple of days in, in between I'm I got a couple of days at home to relax for a minute with my family and uh, get back out there and, and see the joy on the people's faces and mm. and, and uh, singing for them and forming for them and, and and doing everything all over again you know mm. now in your prolific career you also count over 50 soundtracks and movies most recently, Spike Lee's The Five Bloods. What did it mean to you to be part of that film musically and with your song, I'm Coming Home, in the context of the Vietnam War? Oh, that's great, because uh, when you got people to uh, reproduce you on film or whatever, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, uh, it's, it's a great country to uh, know that your material is, is 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 everlasting for that, you know, and they are they 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 are is is choosing you and your material to uh, to put in their their, their act, you know, mm. which is great. 
And what about being part of Spike Lee's film? Oh yeah, well that that I'm coming home was was a long time ago, you know, and for them to go back and 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 choose that particular song, and 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 even the title, even the title is like mm-hmm. uh, is uplifted, you know. I'm yeah. coming home, so uh, it, it's great, it's great, and, and you love it, you know. How would you compare and contrast the group's musical origins in Motown, Detroit, with their later evolving into Philadelphia soul? Well, that's 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 that goes back to when we first started and our sound, the print of sound, you know. And uh, when you get people to producers to, to listen to your sound and listen to your voices, and our voices at the time is something different. Especially what I was lead singer at the time was Bobby Smith, and Bobby had a unique voice. And that's the main thing. When you got something different, because you, you you just can't go out there and and and, and mimic other people. You have, to, you have to have something different for the public to understand and like. So with Bobby, our sound was mostly different, mostly because of his voice. And so that, that, that put us out that, that put us in the limelight. And what are your memories of collaborating with Dionne Warwick and with Stevie Wonder? Oh, that's the same thing because uh even with Stevie and Dion we we we, we uh travel together. That's the main thing. Mm. And that's how Dion came back to 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 be and the spinners and her recording together because we we traveled together and that made like a like 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 a little team there you know and even even she said we need to do an album together you know mm. and uh when, when our manager and their manager got together and uh set everything up that's how the that's how how thing came together for us you know and it was crazy mm. it was a big hit and what memories would you like to share about the original spinners and what they meant to you creatively and personally? Uh, everything is great because uh, at the beginning, that, that's what it is. The, the beginning of the spinners, from that's what girls are made for on up to now. And uh, Harvey Fuqua is, is the reason, is the, is the, is the reason we, we got our sound. We put our I was humming together for us. I humming it together for us, and uh, that's what made our sound. And our sound is a bit different from any other group that's out there. Mm. So that, that that's the reason that we have like I say a long lasting, long lasting sound. You know, because it's out there. Yeah. People love that sound. And any last word about round the block and back again? Back again is 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 different, but actually really not different because round the block and back again is our 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 contributing now to what we what we've been doing even from that's what girls are made for round the block and back again is just a continuation of our sound. And looking back on your life and music. What can you say about what it all meant to you? Oh, it's, 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 it's meant great. It's, 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 like, it's like our life, you know? Yeah. And, and over the years, that's how we survive because of our sound. And it is, our sound is us, you know? Yeah. That's the spinners. You can't, you, can't, you can't go no further than that. Okay, thank you so much, Henry Fambro for calling into our show. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure talking to you. Bye-bye. i 
Arts Express poem interlude about the sullen when not surreal lives of workers, Vocation, a workplace poem by Sandra Beasley. Vocation. For six months, I dealt backrat in a casino. For six months, I played Brahms in a mall. For six months, I arranged museum dioramas. My hands were too small for the Paleolithic I quit. I type 91 words per minute. All of them help. Yes, I speak Dewey Decimal. I speak Russian, Latin, a smattering of Tlingit. I can balance seven dinner plates on my arm. All I want to do is sit on a veranda while a hard rain falls around me. I'll file your 1099s. I'll make love to strangers of your choice. I'll do whatever you want, as long as I can do it on that veranda. If it calls you, it's your calling, right? Once, I asked a broker what he loved about his job, and he said, Sandra Beasley's work can be found at Chicks Dig Poetry at sbeasley.blogspot.com. Oh, yeah, hey, man, this is 
Whenever I'm in New York, I'm Tommy Chong. I kind of created Cheech Chong, and I listen to Arts Express non-stop, because it's the only show that really tells you what's going on. Express, another edition of Black History Moments in Time for Black History Month, sharing historic landmarks in African-American history. Hitler was there that afternoon. Jesse Owens at the 1936 Olympics. Here's Morgan Freeman to explain. Welcome to Moments in Time with your host, Marilyn Foster, sharing historic moments in African-American history. In 1935, a black man set three world records and tied another in less than an hour. Today's Moment in Time will feature James Cleveland Owens, known to the world as Jesse Owens. Owens was born on September 12, 1913, and Owens won four gold medals in the 1936 Olympics. To best illustrate his incredible achievement, I am sharing a trailer from NBC Sports dated 2016, narrated by the voice of Morgan Freeman, called More Than Gold, Jesse Owens and the 1936 Berlin Olympics. Hitler was there that afternoon. He had arrived just in time for another German gold, this time by Karl Hein in the hammer throw, but was now focused on cheering for his country's 100-meter entrant, Eric Bochmeier, whose qualifying time of 10.7 seconds in the semifinal put him in contention. But once the gun sounded, the Buckeye bullet was challenged only briefly by fellow Midwesterner Ralph Metcalf. Bochmeier would miss the medal stand entirely. His win was complete, and it was overwhelming to the Germans. It was amazing, remarkable, and they weren't prepared for that. These people had to reconcile in that moment this idea of Aryan Superman. Maybe this isn't true. Maybe this isn't true. That man, right now, in this moment, has revealed the truth. The crowd responded with thunderous admiration, but there would be no audience with the Fuhrer. The president of the International Olympic Committee had insisted that Hitler no longer congratulate any medalist in his box unless he agreed to greet them all. Hitler understood that this would mean down the line he would have to shake the hand of a black man. This was not something he wanted to do, and so he told Ballet Latour that in the future he would not congratulate publicly any of the athletes. Acknowledged or not, the news of Owen's victory was broadcast worldwide, piercing Hitler's theory of Aryan supremacy. A day after his first gold, Owens added a second. What was evident, everybody's rooting for Jesse. Everybody was. The black Olympians who competed in Berlin 
were not recognized by the White House until 2016, when President Barack Obama invited the athletes' relatives to an event in celebration of their lives and accomplishments. Owens died March 31, 1980. Today, we celebrate the life of James Cleveland Owens, AKA Jesse Owens, for his extraordinary achievements. Special thanks to NBC Sports and narrator Morgan Freeman on Moments in Time. And we'll go out now in our Arts Express screening room with a focus on a term used quite a lot lately, gaslighting, referring to emotional abuse and distress, but that appears to take on added disturbing meaning lately as politicians and the corporate media alarm us with all sorts of questionable assertions into playing mind games pushing for war on the planet. Here's Paul of the Poles' YouTube presentation with the cinematic origins of gaslighting. I've tried so hard to keep it within these walls, my own house. Ah, because you would go out tonight, the whole of London knows it. If I could only get inside that brain of yours and understand. Do you mind if I take my coat off? I always work much better with my coat off. Saucy shirt, isn't it? Linguistics is something I've always found fascinating. Not just the beautiful interplay of enunciations, accents, synecdoches and speech patterns, but the idea that countless times throughout history, blustering gobbledygook and awkward mouth sounds led to the invention of words and language. <laughs> William Shakespeare spotted this toothy fellow and thought it should be called an alligator, the Beastie Boys christened this perfect haircut the mullet, and a Simpsons joke resulted in cromulent being added to Webster's Dictionary. Cinema itself has reappropriated countless innocuous phrases and relaunched them into the cultural landscape as something altogether different. When someone says catfish, we're more inclined to consider the possibility of an online imposter, and if we hear bucket list, odds are someone's cataloguing things to do before they die and not taking an inventory of their mop holders. The term gaslighting may suggest illumination or a radiant glow in the dark, all of which couldn't be further from what it has come to represent. Defined as the action of tricking or controlling someone by making them believe things that are not true, especially by suggesting that they may be mentally ill, the term as we now know it is derived from the 1938 Patrick Hamilton stage play Gaslight. In it, a recently married couple move into an abandoned house where a brutal crime took place long ago. As the days drag on, the wife is slowly and methodically convinced by her manipulative, murderous husband that she's losing control of her mental faculties. Originally adapted for the screen in 1940 by Thorold Baron Dickinson, unquestionably the most 1940s name ever signed to a birth certificate, it's a tale that sits with you long after it's ended. Surprisingly cruel and relentlessly bleak, it makes for one of the most skin-crawling, uncomfortable thrillers of the era. While that may seem like a given, what with all the strangling, abuse and infidelity, it's still shocking to see such an unrepentant sociopathic bastard casually toy with a young woman's mind. Do you think I can trust the insane ravings of a madwoman? As an audience, any punch you're expecting Gaslight to pull will most likely wind up right in your stomach. The film sets out subverting our headspace right from the off. The gorgeous opening tracking shot through a wealthy borough of London gives the false first impression of a harmless, whimsical street, before sneaking up on a savage ransacking and murder. After what feels like an eternity of escalating tension, the first line of dialogue is a woman crying for help into the uncaring London night. Years later, as our central couple move into the forgotten house and the torturous mind games begin, we see the slow undertaking of decorative renovation, plastering over the cracks with a fresh facade, hiding the decay in plain sight. You make my life a misery at home, and now you shame me in public. Bella, our embattled protagonist, is held captive not only by her dubious husband Paul's web of deceptions, but by the waspish upper-crust restraint and high-society mawkishness of the era. 
This is a time and place where women are to be seen and not heard. Not in London, it wouldn't be correct. My dear, I said no. The other women throughout the film are seen as subservient, or sex objects, to be positioned and used at the behest of their male counterparts. Come closer, will you? The cycle of abuse isn't solely focused on grand gestures of theatrical monstrosity. Moving random items, hiding family correspondence, contriving reasons for Bella to question her own autonomy. If I do the things you say, then I am going mad. It's a death by a thousand cuts. You're losing your wits. In a sickening moment, Bella is so starved of human connection, she begs Paul to hurt her, if only to deflect from her internalised anguish. Hit me, hurt me, do anything but... Pity's sake, speak to me. Outside of the oppressive confines of this mysterious house, there's a world of warmth always out of reach. Even when enjoying a brief reprieve from the horrors of home, there's an inescapable dread that this is only an interlude to a waking nightmare. It's punishing stuff watching on as Bella continues dancing to the tune of her declining sense of self. The film's title and the term gaslighting are referring to the gaslights throughout the house. Noticing how they fade and flicker at night, Bella raises the matter with Paul, who puts it down to her growing psychosis. As she collects more clues and inconsistencies surrounding her husband's projections and lies, the truth is revealed. Paul is the unseen murderer from the opening of the film. Having fled the scene before retrieving his victim's valuable jewels, he's waited all these years in order to marry a woman with the means to purchase the house, so he can continue his search. Each night as he secretly rummages through the attic, by turning on the upstairs lights, he lowers the gas pressure to the rest of the house, causing the gas lights to dim throughout. It's a testament to the strength of the writing, narrative conceit and performances, just how much I loathed this man. I hate you. You are utterly repulsive to me. He's even mean to a dog. You'd best thank your lucky stars Keanu Reeves wasn't born yet, you son of a bitch. Critic and professor Emmanuel Levy positions Gaslight and its remake as focal points of a 1940s genre film cycle that could all be filed under Don't Trust Your Husband. Made up of a dozen or so films in which an innocent woman is trapped in their home by a devious controlling man, luminaries such as Alfred Hitchcock, Robert Stevenson, Robert Siodmak, and Anatole Litvak each contributed a number of classics to this oddly specific stable of thrillers. For quite some time, the version I focused on here was all but lost, only preserved and made widely available through the BFI's tireless restorative efforts. The reason this classic nearly vanished from memory? When the 1944 remake of the same name was produced, they set about destroying all surviving negatives of the original in order to expunge its existence and leave their version as the only commercially available alternative. Yet another shining example of the film industry being trash-flavoured trash. As for the American remake itself, it's great. While it follows many of the same beats to the letter, there are noticeable changes that make it a worthy double feature. It's a glossier, higher-budget affair all around, with meatier subplots and more elaborate staging. Notably, the central relationship between husband and wife is expanded and given greater depth. Here, he's not a moustache-twirling bastard right from the start. He uses warmth and kindness to lure in his victim, giving way to cruelties that shape the story from there on out. With all that said, if you're gonna pick one, I'd stick with the nastier, grungier original. Its smaller scale makes for a greater sense of claustrophobia, and the use of canted angles and exaggerated lighting lends it a quietly gothic, uncertain air. It sits comfortably alongside the suspense and whodunit intrigue of the definitive Hitchcockian potboilers. No surprise given another of Hamilton's plays would later be adapted for the screen by the man himself. Beyond its common use in everyday language, Gaslight's casual sadism can be found scattered across entertainment to this day. Films as diverse as Rosemary's Baby, Colossal and The Truman Show all fall into this particular brand of manipulation by those in a position of power. This is one of those situations where the products of influence are more widely seen than the source of the initial inspiration. 
the societal prevalence of the expression gaslighting when referring to coercive abuse, and its incorporation into such a wide range of genres, speaks for itself when you consider how little we discuss the genesis of the term. If you can stomach the awfulness of its antagonist long enough to will our heroine across the finish line, spark up Gaslight and feel your way through this dark, depraved classic. Until next time, this is In Frame Out. And thank you, In Frame Out, for that presentation. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.